Bible, please uh, remain open to Matthew chapter 9 um, as we're going to be covering this next section in our sermon series called King and Kingdom. For several months now, we've been looking at Jesus as King. And now over and over and over and over and over again, um, the Gospel of Matthew, the writer Matthew, is alluding to Jesus being this King, that he has a, a new kingdom and that he is King over it and that it is it is triumphant in every way over every earthly kingdom and the kingdom of sin, Satan, and death. And so we see Jesus over and over and over again illustrate who he is. One of the texts and contexts of understanding the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew is really writing to Jewish people. And he's wanting them to see that uh, Jesus is the foretold Messiah in the Old Testament. So Matthew is constantly slinging scripture, as Jesus did, um, to prove that he was this king and that he was the coming Messiah. As we left off last week, um, Jesus is eating dinner at a guy named Matthew's house. And Matthew is also the writer of this letter. And it's believed that Matthew is a pretty humble guy, actually. Um, and this is really the only time he ever mentions himself. And he strategically places himself in this story because the question last week was, how deep, how far reaching is Jesus's authority and power to forgive? Can he forgive, you know, little minor sins or can he forgive the chief of sinners? And it's believed, Matthew believed even of himself that a tax collector was probably the chief of those sinners. And so humbly, but strategically, Matthew places his story of his conversion experience right here in the perfect place to say not only can Jesus heal the paralytic man's um, sins, but he can heal the worst of sinners' sins. And that was Matthew. We know that Matthew stuck around, persevering through the power of the Holy Spirit. He eventually wrote this letter, ended up dying for his faith one day. His life was never the same after this. So this setting that we're in is that Jesus appears to still be eating with these tax collectors and sinners. That means he's probably eating with you know, other tax collectors. He is eating with, with prostitutes. He's eating with thieves, just people that society cannot stand, and they keep finding Jesus eating with them. But in this case, the Bible tells us that he is at a great feast at Matthew's house, and they're eating. They're having a great time hanging out. When Jesus is approached then by the disciples of John, John the Baptist, this is also Jesus's cousin, John had separated himself from traditional um, Judaism and is, is now proclaiming and has been proclaiming that the, the Son of God would come, that behold, the Lamb of God. He points at Jesus. He baptizes Jesus, if you remember that story. And, and yet there, John, by this time, has been placed in uh, to prison where he will eventually lose his head um, for... Um, really proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance, and they wanted his head for it. But John still has some disciples. He still has people that are following him, and they're, again, preaching probably the same gospel that Jesus is preaching, but they just know John. They follow after John. Maybe they haven't even come in contact yet with Jesus. They've just heard through John. But they come asking a really great question for this context that maybe is a little bit lost for us, but hopefully by the end of the sermon it will make sense. They come asking Jesus in this passage, um, Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? Jesus is eating. 
They're tossing them back, eating a good meal. John and his followers, and they have a very serious question. So briefly, what is fasting? Literally in the Greek, I know that in American um, fasting, we've tried to make it a lot of other things, and I'm not saying there's not some allowances for that, but in, in the Greek, in the original topic of the Scripture in fasting, it means literally not to eat. Not to eat. Um, I've given you this definition before, but I think this is a good one. As fasting consisted of abstinence from food to express two things. One, dependence on God, and two, submission to his will. All right? Dependence on God and submission to his will. It's to take a moment. It was to skip a meal, not for the sake of skipping a meal or losing a few pounds, but it's to skip a meal to take that opportunity to say, as I am hungry and thirsty right now, I should be hungry and thirsty for God. So I'm, I am dependent on him and I want to submit now to what he has called me to. Now, fasting was a very common practice as it is today and amongst most religious systems, including Judaism. Now, we see in Leviticus chapter 16, I believe, that, that there's really only one prescribed day for the Jews to fast. It's called Yom Kippur. It's also known as the Day of Atonement. This is a very special day in all of Judaism and, and also is very symbolic for us as, as Christians as well. We just don't have time to dive into all of that here this morning. So from the Bible, the Bible says, fast this day. That is the only prescribed day that you should be fasting. But by the time that the New Testament is written, most Jews, uh, the new tradition, because again, they were always making it more difficult, always expanding on it to make themselves look even more holy and pious before God, they decided they would start fasting every Monday and Thursday um, of the week. And so that's what's kind of happening inside of this context. It was an unwritten rule that had really become tradition. See, fasting had also been tainted by sin. Like most godly things, they start out really good. Sin, Satan, and death, because we in our, in our original nature are filled with that stuff, have a, a tendency to take something godly um, and, and, and make it ultimate. All right? We make it a functional Savior. We make it a functional God. We actually place it above God. If you read Romans chapter 1, you'll quickly see that as people begin to work the created thing instead of the Creator. And so Jesus in this situation is, is, is understanding that, that fasting has really become very tainted by sin. Not only are they doing it, I mean, you can do it whenever, but I mean, they've become very hardcore on fasting on those two days. But they would also do so in a public setting. Like they wanted people to know that they were fasting. They wanted people to look upon their face and, and see them walking around all pouty face. Um, we like to call it hangry, I guess. Um, once again, my wife has placed me on another diet. Um, I failed the last one she placed me on, and so here we go again, and I want you to know I have hangry moments. There's just moments where I'm just better not to talk to me um, because I want something really bad for me, um, and so we see this kind of pouty picture that has been created inside of the Jews now as they're mumbling around on these days, wanting people to feel sorry for them, but to also think, man, now that is a true Jew. 
God must be very pleased with that brother or that sister. I mean, look at them. They've been spending so much time fasting and praying that they're dwindling down to nothing. I mean, look at their face. They're, they're becoming pale. They're seeking God over seeking food so much that God and we must be impressed. They must be righteous before God. He must be pleased. Lord G- or God, make me like, you know, Brother Hammond's over here, okay? Um, whoever it may be. Make me more like them because God must be extremely, extremely pleased with them. Instead of an expression of, de- of dependence and submission on God and His will, I mean, it really had become this public display of piety so that others would be impressed. So, Jesus, again, what's the context? He's eating. He's laying down on his left elbow. You don't eat with your right hand, your left hand. You only eat in this culture with your right hand. Um, they're hanging out. Wine is going. Probably some good lamb. Some, some matzo bread is, is laid out. Hopefully they had garlic butter because that just makes everything better. I mean, they're just having a great time with these sinners hanging out when John's disciples come up to them. And here is essentially what they're saying with this question is like, you know we can't stand the Pharisees. Like we don't believe in what they're doing. They're pious acting. They're, they're believing that their righteous actions will, will allow them to stand pure before God. We're the disciples of John. Like we're preaching the same message that you are, Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know we can't stand those brothers. And yet, Jesus, what's up? Because we still fast. We haven't given that up. Yeah, maybe we don't go into the center of town and start going, oh, let us pray, and praying really, really loud to impress people. But, but they fast, and, and, and Jesus, we still fast. See, we're fasting, Jesus, while you are feasting. What's up with that? Shouldn't you be fasting as well? So that's the question. What gives? So Jesus responds by giving them three illustrations. One about a bridegroom, and then the last two, one is about a patch on an on a old piece of clothing, and then the second one illustration, or the third illustration there is, is placing new wine into old wineskins. The, the first and the last two illustrations kind of go hand in hand, and so that's how I'm going to handle the text this morning. Is, let's talk about this illustration of the bridegroom, and then talk to the last two um, kind of lump together. All right, so Jesus, let's look at our passage uh, here again. So Jesus responds and says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, when you think about a wedding, what do you think about? All right, maybe that conjures up some bad images for you. Um, but for a lot of us, uh, a wedding is a great time. A wedding is a great celebration. There are several people, I was at your wedding. Some of your weddings, I was able to preach the gospel at their weddings. And, and just before our God and Savior kind of lay out what it means to be married. Uh, a, a wedding is supposed to be awesome. 
It's supposed to be a glorious time, even in our culture. It's just the awing and the ooing as, as we see that bride and we see that groom commit to each other before God. I mean, a lot of times people will be crying at those things and their, their hearts are just overflowing and oozing with love and celebration, okay? If you're like me, after you do the Jesus part, I just want to know what are they going to have to eat? Right? The dudes are like, her dress, or the ladies, when they go to, to weddings, they're like, yes, her dress was just so precious. I mean, she just looked so amazing. And the dudes was like, did you eat some of those chicken fingers? They had chicken fingers. They had peel and eat shrimp. There was an animal that was placed into smoke and covered in smoke for hours, and then they teared it apart, t tore it apart, and gave it to us. I mean, I believe that in heaven, I, I hope in, to the Lord that he makes and creates some sort of sanctified meat for us to eat that has barbecue sauce on it. I mean, I really do, because I, that is manna. I love barbecue, any kind, every kind. It is the only food group, really. And you know, you, we think about these things, but we think about the celebrations. We think about, um, and, and, you know, I, I think it should be that. I mean, there should be music. There should be dancing. There should be a celebration of what God is doing in these people's lives. It, it, there should be great, great memories that are taking place. Why? Because it's, it's a wedding. It's joyful. Inside of Judaism, think about this, um, dads and moms, if you're having to pay for the wedding, but a typical Jewish wedding lasted for seven days. Typical Jewish funeral, I think, lasted up to 70. Can you imagine 70 days going to the funeral home? I'm like, Laura, hopefully, I'm, I'm planning to build my own box, for one, but two, I'm like, when I die, scoop me, roll me over, and go have a barbecue, smoke some meat, have a great time, all right? Do not go more, I mean, imagine 70 days of going to the funeral home. I mean, how many times can you look at somebody and go, they look real good? <laughs> Y'all from the south, that's what we say, from the north. They look at dead people, embalmed and stiff, and go, they look so natural. They did a good job on, I mean, it's weird. It's like... Close that, that contraption. Put a picture of me going <laughs> on it and call it a day. Play free bird. I mean, something. I mean, but let's, let's celebrate. That is the way a wedding is supposed to be, okay? It, it is a celebration. That's why Jesus has the, his first, you know, I always call it the spring break uh, miracle, is that, I mean, that's what's happening in the Gospel of John. His first miracle is turning the water into wine because the, the wedding has been going on so many days. They ran out of the good stuff, and they're serving juicy juice, and people are like, man, this tastes like sugar. So what does Jesus do? Bippity-boppity-boop. And there's wine, out of the water, right? And, and it's a great, great celebration that is taking place. And so Jesus, what is he saying? He says, man, we're, we're eating, we're drinking wine, we're dancing, we're celebrating because I'm the bridegroom. Who goes to a wedding and doesn't eat, doesn't participate, doesn't engage in the celebration of 
these two people. And so Jesus is saying, man, I am the bridegroom. This is a party. The, the church is my bride. We should be celebrating because I'm in the presence of you. And it would be weird, even to the Jews, if you were to say, who goes to a wedding and not eat? They would think that's ridiculous. So when they hear Jesus saying this, now they're like, duh. He should be eating. We should be eating. You know, where's the smoked lamb chops? Pass them over. We should be eating. The bridegroom is here. But also, this is extremely controversial that Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. Why is it controversial? Because only God can be called the bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament, there's lots of passages there that, that kind of paint that out. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 8, it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. In Hosea 6, 16, And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So Jesus is once again declaring that he is what? He's God. He's God. He's, he is the bridegroom. This is a story. God is in their midst. And so they don't have to seek just submission and dependence and longing and hungry and hungering after him because why? He is here. He is in our presence, the very flesh, God in the flesh, made flesh, the, the, the visible, the invisible, made visible through the person and work of Jesus. And he is hanging out with his people. He is eating with the bride and they should be partaking. It is not time to mourn. This is a time not to fast, but it is a time to eat. Now, Jesus, notice what he says. Now, there will come a time where the bridegroom will be taken from you, and then what does he say that they will do? They will fast. Why? Because he's away. All right? When I'm away from my wife, she's my best friend. She's wearing green today. You look beautiful. All right? And I, when I'm away from her, I long to be with her. I mean, it, it can literally cause grief within me especially when it's really long distances for long periods of time. Why? I'm hungering to be with my wife. I'm hungering for that companionship. I'm hungering for that relationship. I want to be with her. I want to know what she is doing, what she is eating. I don't, she doesn't even have to talk to me, but I just want to be in her presence. Right? In the same way, when Jesus is not with us, that is the picture of how we as believers, brothers and sisters, should be acting toward God, that we are hungering to be with Jesus. As a 14-year-old, as a I did not want Jesus to return. One, I wasn't a Christian. And two, there were lots of other things I wanted to accomplish before that day. Right? But as I've grown in my relationship with Jesus, I've obviously become a Christian. Um, there should be this desire more than anything on this planet that we, brothers and sisters, are longing to be in the presence of God. That his return is swift, that is here today because Jesus is ultimately saying, guess what? Even in my leaving, why am I leaving, Bri? I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to build you a house. 
I'm going to build you an eternal kingdom where there, there isn't a paralyzed man, where, where there aren't these diseases, where, where there aren't broken relationships. I'm preparing this place. And so your hope is not in what you're going through in this moment, but your hope is in something that you are yet to see, but you know because you trust the bridegroom that he is preparing a perfect, glorious place where what we consider to be most precious, and that is gold, is his asphalt. What a beautiful picture as, as Jesus is saying, man, I am the bridegroom. I love this image that in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, um, his disciples, again, they're coming to John and they're like, hey, man, is Jesus really the dude? Like, is he is the Messiah? And I love John's response here. Um, in, in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, go back and read this. It's such a powerful statement. He says this, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. See, John, Jesus says, is the most important dude to ever live except for Jesus. That's what the Gospels tell us. And yet, by this time, when the groom shows up, when the best man realizes that the groom is here, the best man needs to sit down and be quiet. It's about him. It's about that bride. And so we see this beautiful picture doesn't Genesis and the book of Revelation both begin and end with a wedding? Jesus creates man. It wasn't as though that dirt was sitting there going, make me a man. All right, it was dirt. It was mud. It was void. It was nothing. And yet God molds out of that dirt and clay a man, causes him to go to sleep, takes rib from his side, creates from that, and makes a woman. When Laura and I were first dating, my pet name for her was my rib. She's like, hey, what's up, my rib? All right? That does not went over the ladies, gentlemen. All right? <laughs> Your bone marrow. All right? Not a pretty picture. But that's where it was coming from even if it was coming there poorly. Um, we see this beautiful picture. We see this, this beautiful picture in, in the book of Genesis that, that, that God has, has created this wedding. And, and yet, we notice in Jesus that Jesus is a better bridegroom, a better husband than that of Adam. Who, who Adam passively sits back as he watches his bride commit spiritual suicide. He does nothing, nothing to stop her. But rather, at all cost, Jesus, for the sake of his bride, for the sake of his wife, does what? For the sake of his church, pursues, lays down his life, and guarantees a spotless bride. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when our fasting is over. There will come a day, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we 
Um, as though we are hungry and thirsting for Jesus now because He is off away from us preparing a place through fasting. There will come a day. This is good news this morning. There will come a day when we will once again eat with Him. And just think, it is not as though you're going to be eating like you ever walk into a cafeteria and you don't know most of those people. That was called me every day from junior high to the senior high school. Who are these people? I do not belong. And yet, out of, I believe, the millions of people that Jesus is going to sane, if not bazillion, trillion, gazillions, is that He is going to know each and every one of those individually in such a personal way. Isn't that phenomenal? You're not eating with a stranger on that day. But we, as the bride of Christ, will be doing as so it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice... Let's exalt and, and give Him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and, and let the one who hears says, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, we must think upon those glorious times in the midst of great trial and tribulation, in the midst of great hunger and thirsting for righteousness, Christ's righteousness. We must also remember and do not lose sight that in the end there is a great banquet. It is all going to come together. It is all going to be made right. It is all going to be healed. Your, your physical body, your, your mental stability, your families, all those who are in Jesus Christ will be made completely whole in glorification. It is a true, he is a true and better husband. He is a true and better bridegroom. And so Jesus is stating these things. He's making this as an example before these Pharisees and before these sinners and before these tax collectors and before these disciples. He's like, you see this? This is a miniature version. This is a drop in the bucket of what one day you will experience. He goes on, doesn't he? He gives us two more examples. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, I grew up in the 80s. Some of you weren't even born yet, which makes me just feel really old. But in the 80s, um, I used to wear Wrangler jeans, dark, dark Wrangler jeans. And, and I remember even as a child, you could go over to Walmart and inside of Walmart, um, if you ever got a hole in your jeans, you could buy these sticky patches. Does anybody remember those? And they were always a different colors than your actual jeans. So it just, it looked like these perfect squares that fit over little boys and little girls' kneecaps that your mama would iron on to your Wranglers or your Lees or your Jordash or your guests if you were that wealthy, you rich people, all right? Um, 
I remember my first pair of guest jeans, my mama, some of y'all are like, what are guest jeans? Um, and I just thought I was the coolest kid in school because I had a triangle on my hind end that said, guess, I'd say about 55 pounds, but that's a totally different topic, right? <laughs> um, and, and you just remember that. And so Jesus paints this picture and he's like, all right, so you don't take an old piece of clothing, your tunic, your outer garment, your coat, and, and put an unshrunk piece of cloth on it. Because if you attach it to it and then you wash it or it gets wet, it's going to shrink. And so what was a small hole is now a gaping hole inside of that. The next thing that Jesus illustrates is they would often take different skins of animals. Obviously, they used probably every part of the animal, um, the bones, the skin, the meat, all of those sorts of things to, to provide for them. Um, they would typically take, I think uh, from my research, a leg or the neck. Um, you could sew that together really quickly and easily and, and make these pouches that they would put new wine into it. And when it began to ferment, it expands inside of that bag, right? And then as the fermentation is done, then it kind of collapses back and you've got a bag of wine, right? So what Jesus is illustrating, again, the same point that he was illustrating with the patch is this, is that you can't take new wine and place it into a bag that is already expanded, because when you do, it becomes um, kind of like a rubber band. Like after you, you know, use it and use it and use it and use it and use it, eventually it, it loses elasticity. It, it is that right? And um, you, when you pull on it, it will just snap. It can dry rot. All right. And so when we see this picture, Jesus is saying those exact same things. He's like, you can't put something new. You can't put a new patch on old clothing, and you can't put new wine into an old bag. And guess what? Verse 18, which we'll go over next week, but it makes sense for today. While he was saying these things to them, behold, someone had come in and interrupted him. Thanks, Jesus. All right? So we don't, we don't have a full explanation here. He's like in the middle of a sermon illustration, all right, and somebody walks in. And so we, we have to take the context of the Scripture and the things that are happening around it, the passage, to really come up with what is Jesus trying to say in these things. I mean, imagine if you sit down and you ask somebody a question and they go, well, I'm a bridegroom. You should, you should eat too because I'm here. And have you ever put a patch on some old clothes? Don't do that. And have you ever put new wine in an old wide skin? And, you know, it walks off. We, we kind of have that, that tension here. But I, I think if we, you know, dive into this, then we can really begin to see what Jesus is getting at. Very quickly, what, is it, what do I think that Jesus is trying to say? And there's lots of scholarship to back this up if you need it. Jesus... The gospel and his kingdom cannot be contained in their faulty religious system. Let me say it again. I think that Jesus is ultimately trying to say in these illustrations, these last two specifically, that Jesus, the gospel, his kingdom cannot be contained in their faulty religious system. Now, get this, and I know that there's this great poem that's on Jeff. Beaky or Berkey or something. It's, it's online. And, and Jeff appears to be a great guy. He's put out a lot of books and some great things, him and his wife. You can YouTube this. It came out a few years ago called um, 
uh, religion or why Jesus hates religion or why Jesus is greater than religion, all these sorts of things. But I want you to know, we need to be very careful in some of that. I don't think that Jesus is anti-religion, okay? He's not anti-religion. What, what Jesus is, is anti is he is anti-man-made religion, all right? He's not anti-religion. He is anti-man-made religion. He is, he is, he is uh, not cool with man believing that he is at the center or she is at the center of the universe or at the center of Scripture or at the center of salvation. Jesus is not cool with that. If it's all about us and if it's all about what we can do and the power that we hold within our very psyche and in our very nature, then why do we need Jesus? If we could create a religious system in order to work our way to God, again, as we've talked about over and over and over again, the Pharisees, what do they believe by following all of these lists of rules and regulations? That the more holy that they act externally, the more God would be pleased with them. As we've also learned, they believe that Messiah was going to come, but when Messiah came, what was he going to do? He was going to boot all the tax collectors and sinners and he was going to reward the Pharisees because they have been living such holy external lives. And so Jesus is not cool with that. They've become man-made and religious. These religious systems of believing that they could personally reach a righteous state on their own. Now, again, before we beat up the Pharisees, brothers and sisters, let's face it, most of us in this room are pretty prone for this type of religious system, aren't we? Don't you believe that good should be rewarded? Right? Don't you believe that? That good should be rewarded? Don't we believe that, one, we are good? Two, we believe that good things happen to good people. How many of you parents have ever said that to your kid? Well, good things happen to good people. I must be a terrible person. <laughs> good things happen to good people. Also, I mean, we believe these lies that we believe are somewhere in Scripture, but they're not, that God blesses those who, you know, or helps those who help themselves. Right? Not found in the Bible, but people quote it like it's Scripture. We have a tendency to believe, man, we deserve to be saved. We deserve for Jesus to come. I mean, <laughs> look at us. I mean, we've got a pinky toe. We're amazing creatures. Look at all that we have created. We are good. We deserve to do this. We're all bent toward wanting to work our way and believing because of our external activities that we deserve something from God and ultimately are also comparing ourselves and our work to those who aren't doing the same things. We believe that we're good. Jesus is anti religious systems of self-purification, extreme moralism, moralism, and believing that we can obtain satisfaction and sanctification through our actions. See, this is the religion of the law and achievement apart from God. Let me ask you this question. Did, hypothetically, did Jesus save you? Or did you partner with Jesus to save you? 
One, it's all Jesus' work. The other is, is work based on you. That Jesus, we believe in some way that, let me ask you this question as well this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Did, did Jesus provide a way for salvation? Or is Jesus the way of salvation? So there's a difference there. Is he an option that we have to in some way work our way to eventually and finally get? And if we, if we do just enough, even if it's, if it's just say the right prayer, sing the right song, fast the right number of times, listen to enough Chris Tomlin songs or Oceans again, if we do it one more time, then God will impute to us Jesus' righteousness. Or does Jesus save? Does he do it? Jesus, I think, is anti any sort of religious system that believes that the work of man can in some way give themselves to God. Jesus is, is saying, I'm not, again, anti-religion. I'm not even anti-law. Why? Because the law has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in me. What we could not do, what man could not do, Jesus did. His kingdom, the gospel of grace, cannot fit into this broken system of self-moralism, behavior modification. If I do better and grip my teeth harder, then I'll get this and I'll get saved. Jesus is anti that picture. So he, his kingdom, his grace, the gospel, can't be placed onto an old cloth because eventually it's not going to work. It's going to cause a bigger issue. He, it's so fresh. It's so good. It's, it's such an expounding movement that it can't be placed into this old movement. And yet... We are prone, aren't we? We're prone to be that way. I hate to bore you with my story, but it fits quickly into this, is that most of my, I grew up in church. I mean, uh, people used to laugh at me and call me a liar when I told them I, I didn't cuss unless I was like, like, you know how you go to pronounce a word and it comes out sounding like a cuss word? I mean, I was that kid in class. I remember sitting in art class one time. I know most of you never in art class because those people are weird. Um, but I was in art class because I'm weird. And I was drawing, and I went to say a word, and it came out sounding like a dirty word. And immediately, my entire table were like, oh, Eric Baker cussed. And I was like, no, it was my shoe. Or I said, you know, um, I, I, won't, I won't say anything because it will just sound like I'm cussing. Um, but... Um, I mean, I was that kid. I wasn't addicted to pornography. Um, I did not drink. I mean, to this day, um, I was talking to some drug addicts um, that we were working with, and they're like, I was like, you smell that? No. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been around a drug addict, but I call them a hound dog or something. I mean, they're, they're you smell that? I'm like, uh, no. It always stinks in here. <laughs> We're at Hope House. <laughs> and he goes, smells like reefer. 
smells like weed in here. I'm like, and they're like, it dance up, smells like weed in here. And I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, the only drugs I've ever seen are, are you know, Pepto-Bismol above the counter with a give you at the doctor and some, I imagine just some grass that they put in a Ziploc bag and put on movies. I mean, I have no idea. I just, I, that's the life. I was a very sheltered kid. We had a very a good upbringing and I was just a goody, goody by nature. I, I was in a, a terrible Christian band. I was in a Christian drama group when every church thought it was cool. If you want to be really relevant, you got to do dramas. Anybody remember Sin Box? Anybody? You know what Sin? You put a, a box up here and you play some like really melancholy music, and a guy walks by and he notices that the box says Sin and he looks at the box. He looks around. And then he steps into the box, and then he can't get his leg out of the box. And then he steps his other leg in the box, and he can't get his leg out of the box, right? And then Jesus comes, which is some white dude in a robe. And then you hug G- Sin Box, all right? That at one time was cool. I was the man in the Sin Box. I mean, I, our lives revolved around church. Everything about it. So when I was 19, and Jesus wrecked my life, and I told people I'd just become a Christian, they were floored. What do you mean? Well, brothers, sisters, I, I learned that there's a difference in being religious, even Christian religious, and being saved by Jesus. I remember the first time after I went to Campus Crusade for Christ on Western's campus, a man named Richard Carwell, I'd filled out something and he came knocking on my door and my girlfriend at the time um, was sitting in my dorm room and um, Richard came in and you have to understand, I, at, this still, at this point I was not a Christian but my entire room was decorated in Jesus junk. Like newsboys, poster cons, you know, DC talk, Jesus freak, I had what would Jesus do bracelets everywhere, tracks on all kinds of stuff hanging up all over my room. Not a Christian. Richard steps in my room to share the gospel with me. It was already awkward because my girlfriend was sitting on the bed with me. And he plops down, tells me who he is. And I remember for like the next hour, I never stopped talking about how awesome I was and how involved in all of these different ministries from the time I was born I had been in. And literally, well, we hoped it after an hour, Richard practically didn't say anything. And at the end of it, I mean, literally did this. Like, well, you know, something that I, you know, hope we see you back at Crusade. Got his bag and just left. Because why? Man, my entire life, I have a character flaw of, man, I want to be accepted by everybody. I want to be accepted. I, I hate rejection. That's why I typically would never ask out a girl until I found out that she's already like me. And then I was like, ah, yeah, okay. I mean, I hate rejection. I absolutely hate it. I'm 38. You think, you, oh, you'll grow out of that. Nope. Mm-mm. I mean, I hate it. I want to be accepted by everyone. And the way that I thought that I could be accepted, again, was by being religious. That in some way, he loves me if I do this. He loves me not if I do this. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me not. See, Jesus, aren't you impressed with me? If I can do more, he loves me. 
then he loves me not, then he's going to be really pleased with me, that he's going to really love me, that in some way that he's, I'm out there floating and, and I'm drowning and he throws me the life vest and all i got to do is now grab a hold of the life vest and he's going to be like, man, you're doing such a great job grabbing hold of that life vest. And yet, that is not the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus does it. He does it. That Jesus saves, and that doesn't fit in this work-based theology. Now, I'm not talking about obedience this morning. We are to live an obedient life, but you will only do so if you are truly been saved by Jesus, and he has done that. Then you will lead a life of obedience. Get this this morning. Children, young people, everyone in here. Did you know that you have perfect obedience? From God's perspective, your obedience is perfect. Because Jesus is, is. And he imputes to you perfect obedience. So when God looks upon your obedience this morning, guess what? For all of time, past, present, and future, you have perfect obedience. Hmm. Good news. So a guy that's a goody-goody, that's always seeking to be more obedient, more obedient, more obedient, and that will completely lose my mind, be up all night, eat my feelings. Ain't no fasting going on here. It's eating my feelings, my situation, all of that is the realization that in and through the person and work of Jesus that he has done all of the work, that he is glorious, that he is gracious, that he will not fit into my man-made religion that I've even made for myself where I'm on the throne of this life. And Jesus comes in and he knocks me off the throne and he realizes that, man, you, only I can sit here. Let me read something to you and then we're going to pray. I've got a few slides with this. Promise quickly. I think this is from the book Death by Love. Religion says, if I obey God, we got it? Yes, awesome. Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. Gospel says, because God loves me, I can obey. Religion has good people and bad people. Gospel has only repentant and unrepentant people. Religion values a birth family, meaning like your lineage is important. Gospel values a new birth. Religion depends on what I do. Gospel depends on what Jesus has done. Religion claims that sanctification justifies me. The gospel claims that justification enables sanctification. Religion has the goal to get from has the goal to get from God. Gospel has the goal to get God. Religion sees hardships as punishment for sins. Gospel sees hardships as sanctified affliction. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion believes appearing as a good person is the key. The gospel believes that being honest is the key. Religion has the uncertainty of standing before God. Gospel has certainty based upon Jesus' work. Religion sees Jesus as a means. The gospel sees Jesus as the end. Religion sees ends, excuse me, religion ends in pride or despair, and the gospel ends in humble joy. We must realize this morning that it is not about a man-made religion. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, all this man-made stuff, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not talking about Buddhism and, and Hinduism. I'm talking about Eric religion. The man-made religion for myself. The religion you have created for yourself. If it is man-made where you're in some way going to impress God, impress others, and in some way work your way into the kingdom of God, I want you to be reminded this morning, that's religion. 
And may we stand firm in the gospel. May he increase and may we decrease. Let's take a moment.